Welcome to the Data Points Podcast. Focused on the importance of data in a 21st century world, we discuss data-centric topics, such as fundamentals of data management and use, strategies for building buy-in within organizations, the crucial role that communities play in this important work, and more. My name is Stephen O'Connor, and I'm the Multimedia Production Associate here at GovX. In this role, I support the work of GovX through media content creation, including the podcast you're listening to right now. Ordinarily, I'm in the control room listening in during the recording session, but I get the special opportunity today to lead our conversation. Today, we're taking a look at the Pandemic Data Initiative, an element of the Coronavirus Resource Center aimed at discussing the challenges analysts faced when working with public data of varying quality and completeness. The COVID-19 pandemic revealed how unprepared our public data reporting practices were for an event of such magnitude. And the PDI serves as a collection of valuable lessons learned and recommendations for how to improve our public data policies and infrastructure. We're joined today by Dr. Joshua Porterfield, content lead for the Pandemic Data Initiative. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Stephen, and you can just call me Josh. So just tell me a little bit about yourself, what you do and how you came to GovX. Yeah, so I have I have a somewhat unique background to bring me here to GovX. I'm actually a chemical engineer by training. I did my PhD in chemical and biomolecular engineering here at Johns Hopkins, really focused on nanomedicine for inflammation in the brain and the liver and the eye. So now, of course, naturally, I was working on COVID-19 data with the uh, Centers for Government Excellence here. And so really, I learned through my training that I really have a passion for scientific communication and also policy on how science is controlled, mediated, and interfacing with the public. And so really, the Centers for Government Excellence is an incredible place to be working now, as I really get to be at that interface between public policy and science. COVID-19 really highlighted how much disconnect there is between scientists creating this data, researchers doing this work, and the public who's consuming it and making decisions based on all of this data. So really, I, I'm in the right place and happy to be here. So we're here to talk a little bit about the Pandemic Data Initiative. Can you tell us, you know, what is that? So the Pandemic Data Initiative was the brainchild of Vice Provost for Interdisciplinary Initiatives, Dr. Lainey Rutko, and Associate Vice Provost for Public Sector Innovation, Beth Blauer. They had really been leading this Coronavirus Resource Center project here at Johns Hopkins. And through their work and through their leading of the research team and the communications team, we were just accumulating this long litany of data problems, data concerns, as we started trying to figure out how to make all these different data systems in states and also countries around the world match and become a consistent form and interface here at the Coronavirus Resource Center. So they actually found funding and established the Pandemic Data Initiative as a place where these concerns could be voiced. And we could begin this dialogue about data governance, data policy, data issues that were having daily impact on people's lives, not just decision makers at the highest level, but teachers, parents, you know, people who just wanted to go to the grocery store. Data laws, regulations, and policies are having great impact at that level. And the Pandemic Data Initiative sought 
to kind of bring up some of these issues to the attention of people who could solve them. And so it, it sounds like, was this not an initial focus of the CRC? How did it come about? Yeah, so really this came about because of all of the concerns that the data team was noticing as they started pulling data from Maryland and Michigan. And the testing data didn't match the testing data from this state. And the death data didn't match the death data from this state. How can you really get the pulse of a national public health emergency when you don't have an accurate national picture on data? Instead of just being frustrated on our own behind the scenes, it was really a chance to say, hey, we've been identified as data leaders in this field of COVID-19. There's been awards, national recognition, international recognition. I mean, anyone who turned on CNN saw Johns Hopkins data. And so we were in a rare position to actually have this podium, this pulpit to talk to the public and decision makers about, hey, you may like the product that we're creating, but there was a lot of chaos that we filtered through to create this for you. And it's not something that we can let happen again. COVID-19, we've handled it well for considering the position that we were in data-wise before the pandemic hit, but there were, was no reason for us to be so unprepared and so disconnected going into it. And so really, from a public health standpoint, we want to be prepared to face the next crisis, whether it's a natural disaster or another pandemic or just a seasonal outbreak of flu. We should have data and be able to use it in a manner that can save lives and help people make decisions. And for some reason, we weren't there. And so it sounds like through all of these experiences and, and through a lot of the work that was put in, the Pandemic Data Initiative can kind of serve as this reference toolkit for governments. And I wonder if somebody were to look up the PDI, what would they see? What, what are they looking at? So first of all, the Pandemic Data Initiative lives on the Coronavirus Resource Center, which is coronavirus.jhu.edu. And at the top of the screen, there are topics, and you can select Pandemic Data Initiative from the topic screen. There are really two types of content that we're producing in the Pandemic Data Initiative. The first is a blog series that really dives into some of these data issues and the nitty gritty of some of the, the problems that we're seeing and, and possibly how to solve them. Whereas the second half of the content consists of interviews with subject matter experts at Johns Hopkins who have been focused on these data issues for years and have done many, many, many research studies involving, you know, demographic data, LGBTQI individuals. These conversations really led to some potential policy solutions or just directions that we need to go and conversations that we need to start having. Are there any interviews or topics that are particularly memorable or topics that maybe came up multiple times, bigger kind of hairier issues that we need to be addressing? So one of the, the first big problems that as I got into this work regards state reporting cadences. So when we're in an emergency and everything seems to be changing every day, you know, some weeks COVID was the first thing on the news and some weeks it wasn't. We had surges, we had variants. So states needed to be reporting as frequently as they could to get people the most accurate up-to-date information. As the pandemic dragged on, continues to drag on, states started to reduce how frequently they were updating their citizens on the state of the pandemic. 
through conversations with a lot of the CRC leadership, such as Dr. Lauren Gardner, Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo, and Dr. Sarah Bertrand Elise, we discussed the importance of states really as data providers and that they need to be updating their citizens as part of their constitutional civic duty to inform and protect the people that live within their state. There was a lot of pushback from states about this. There were issues with staffing, burnout, funding, some very tough demanding job during a public health emergency to provide this data, analyze it, clean it up, and produce it for public consumption. And our public health systems, data systems weren't appropriately funded and built to handle something like this. And that's really not the situation we should have been in. And in response, states were reducing how often they told people what was going on. And that's not really the situation we should be in. Another issue that people really engaged with on the Pandemic Data Initiative was the concept of personal data and data privacy. This really started with a conversation with Dr. Thomas Ridd at the School for Advanced International Studies about you know, hackers. And, and we saw that a few times through the pandemic as state dashboards were brought down by international hacking groups. How do we set up data systems to protect personal privacy, but also, you know, provide enough data for people to make actions and make decisions? It was great to learn that we can basically make enough public health data available to decision makers and individuals without providing really anything that's personally identifiable when we're at the scale of this of a pandemic where there's hundreds of thousands of cases as opposed to a few individuals that could maybe be identified. And this idea was carried through with Dr. Ite Feinmesser at the Cary School of Business about your personal data, about your personal data on your phone, because really this is an area where policy is incredibly lagging here in the United States. One of the biggest protections of personal health data is HIPAA, which I'm pretty sure almost everyone's heard about as you sign your waivers when you go just get a checkup. HIPAA really protects health data and it protects it very well. But the issue that Dr. Feinmesser brought up is that In this modern world, all data is health data. If I can access all the information about your phone, what you've been searching, where you've been going, where you live, what you do for work, what you've been eating, you can diagnose someone's diseases without actually having access to their health record. While this data is really useful for researchers, it can also be used by companies targeting you, as as everyone's seen with ads that they don't remember signing up for. So we need policies that protect people, but also make this valuable data source accessible and usable to the people who need it for both research and leadership. Lastly, a spot that we really wanted to make our stand on the Pandemic Data Initiative regards kind of the labeling and categorization of demographic data in the United States. Unfortunately, we don't have really any policies that mandate a specific type of data collection across the United States. The Office of Management and Budget provides guidelines for how we categorize race and ethnicity, and that's how that's handled in the census, which is a federal data collection endeavor. But when you're doing state by state, some states will say white, some will say Caucasian, some will say Hawaiian Pacific Islander and Asian, some will just have Hawaiian Pacific Islander. This really lets people fall through the cracks when they're not being identified properly, and it makes it so that states can't actually talk to each other because they're not speaking the same data language. 
specifically when you're looking at the Hispanic population. We talked with Dr. Kathleen Page in the School of Medicine about this. Some don't want to self-identify or they're worried that their identification will potentially lead to issues with immigration or customs. And many people in the Latin community don't necessarily just belong to a blanket umbrella statement of Latinx or Hispanic. There are Guatemalans, there are South American Latinos, and, and they have different needs in different communities when we're looking at spread of a disease like this. Right now, the official U.S. list has about six racial groups, which you can't divide the United States into six groups of people and actually be able to make tailored decisions and actions regarding health policy. We saw this when we were looking at vaccinations, when we were trying to identify groups that were maybe more hesitant than others or areas where vaccines just hadn't been made as accessible or available. And if you don't have detailed demographic data that's also interpretable in a generalized manner, it's hard to figure out who you need to reach out to, which areas you need to identify community leaders in to get the word out. So we've really been crippling ourselves by not setting standards for how we identify demographic data. But then you also need to have those people involved in the conversation. Like when we talk with Dr. Sabra Klein about the different issues with biologically male and biologically female people as they're receiving care, they have very different health needs. But then when you involve the transgender community, they have a whole different set of health needs. So we need to identify those people correctly. But if we're not having them in the room when we're discussing how do we set demographic data standards, then we don't know if we're going to be making decisions that appropriately reflect that community and include that community. So we really need inclusive governance when we're talking about setting demographic data standards. We can't just set them. We need to have good standards that people will adhere to and you know feel seen. Well, so you mentioned a laundry list of challenges and problems that you encountered as you were working to assemble the CRC. And, and I wonder what were some of the biggest problems, the most complex that the team encountered that maybe you weren't actually able to address? And how do you how do you cope with that? How are you able to successfully run a data dashboard like the CRC in the face of problems that you just don't have the tools to fix? Yeah, so the, so the issue of demographic data is, is really the window that can expose all of the problems we had on the data side at the CRC. When we were just collecting, scraping raw data from each of the state dashboards, you know, reports, PDFs, we ended up with over like 3,000 individual demographic categories. That was without any cleaning up on our end, Caucasian, white, white slash Caucasian. Those would have been three different categorizations in that list. And so we had incredible researchers that went through and had to figure out which actually can connect to each other. We can call all of these the same label just to enable us to compare these disparate data streams. We really, like I said, need to have some standards about data. But that also brought up, as I mentioned, the kind of scraping from PDFs and PowerPoints and announcements and tweets. One public health department, I won't specify, was updating its COVID numbers through tweets for a lot of the pandemic and sometimes in Facebook posts. We can't automatically scrape that data and have to dedicate someone's time every day to go in and check what the new numbers are and update the database and then share that information on the CRC with the public. So also having sort of standard open data portals, as we really saw developing during the COVID-19 pandemic, 
are essential to getting data to the people in a way that they can digest it and then also making data available to researchers and groups like the CRC that are aggregating data and trying to make it available to policymakers and individuals. So we have to have the data available, we have to have it understandable. And so we did see some progress with that over the pandemic and that some states reopened their dashboards. I mean, we still have over 20 states with active dashboards right now. And and I think that's something that we could really be modifying and capitalizing on in the future. I wouldn't say there were there were too many success stories throughout the pandemic of changes to reporting standards or reporting mechanisms because there wasn't federal leadership. And and that's through through both administrations that we've seen so far. One big success, though, was in hospitalization data, where the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services actually mandated that all hospitals in the U.S. that receive Medicare or Medicaid funding, which is almost all of them, as a condition of funding, have to report this data regularly aggregated in a certain manner, identified with certain characteristics. And it was some of the most rich, well-labeled, clear data we've ever had access to from a public health perspective. We now know that, you know, hospitals have the capacity to get this data in a consistent, clear manner, but it took a little bit of a stick and carrot. There was a lot of complaining as these mandates went into effect But basically, it showed that it can be done. We, as a large, diverse country, can have unified data in some capacity. And so maybe funding mechanisms will be a way forward to actually force some of these changes. But regardless, there needs to be leadership from Congress or the White House on making these data similar across 50 states and six territories. Well, let me ask what happens if these issues aren't addressed. Yeah. So as I kind of started earlier, is we really can exacerbate health disparities when we're not actually using data to its full power. Specifically with demographic data, historically, demographic data has been a tool for division and racism-driven actions such as redlining. But better defined demographic data could also be a helpful tool to solve some of these issues that we've created. When we have the data to identify who's at the most need, who's the most vulnerable, who doesn't have access to resources, we can better distribute resources, make more targeted policies, and actually help specific people that need the help the most. However, when we don't have good data, we're kind of shooting in the dark. One of our pandemic data initiative forums, one of the first ones actually had Baltimore City Health Commissioner, Dr. Letitia Durasa. She said that when we're trying to distribute vaccines, we need to know where to go. Without having high quality data with geographic granularity, with demographic granularity, they don't know where to go. Baltimore City actually set up one of the best COVID dashboards that I've seen on a city level so that they had this very detailed neighborhood level demographic specific information. Then you can distribute resources more equitably. Otherwise, we could say that to increase vaccination rates, we just need to put more vaccines out there. Putting them where they already exist doesn't help anyone. Better demographic, better data in general helps us identify disparities, helps us locate them, and helps us address them. Without that data, these people can continue to suffer 
and we can continue to expand the divides that we've been seeing very obviously in American society. So with your experience overseeing the PDI and watching the CRC grow and develop over the past few years, how can cities make use of some of the lessons learned in their own work? What are some of the takeaways? I think one of the things that has motivated me the most throughout this experience is the revelation that we have some of the most talented and committed people working on the ground to collect data and help people. One thing I hadn't mentioned is that as part of the Pandemic Data Initiative, we actually held bi-monthly public forums inviting data experts from around the country to kind of talk about their perspectives and what they learned fighting with the COVID-19 pandemic. So we had Dr. Jarasa from Baltimore City's Health Department. We had Dr. Michael Hinojosa from the Dallas Independent School District. I mean, we had Mayor Greg Fisher from Louisville, Kentucky. So we had a wide variety of guests. And the one thing that every person was consistently clear on is that they need better data, they want better data, and they want to better serve the public. These are all people who are serving long nights, getting midnight calls, making decisions that impacted people on the ground, student safety, family safety, are buses going to run today? They were dealing with all of this chaos without the best data they could have, and they still came in and did an amazing job every day. We could be better supporting these people with better centralized, standardized data. The fact that this coalition of the determined exists gives me hope that we will find a way to fix a lot of these problems going forward. And that once we do fix the data problems, there are people that are ready to act. We also learned that there was an incredible public thirst for data. I mean, the number of emails that the CRC was getting every day about, oh, I don't see updated numbers for my county. Did you get data or what's going on here? Can you explain it to me? I mean, there are many people in every county in this country that want data, that have been using COVID data, and that now expect that data from their leaders. We've shown that we can do this. We can provide publicly facing data. We can turn around data in less than six months. Most health data provided by the CDC was coming out three, four, five, six months later, even years later, after it had time to get cleaned up and perfected before a kind of public data set came out. Data sets were coming out every day in the pandemic, and that is how it should be moving forward. And that could be one of the ways that we continue to fight misinformation, is that we get the data out there for people to read and analyze. The average American can look at a chart after COVID-19 and know what a trend looks like. They can know how things look in their area compared to other areas. They can understand this complicated data to a level that impacts their daily lives. And we need to trust them to make these analyses and decisions on their own by giving them the data. I think we've seen that Americans can handle access to data and they deserve it as citizens. Well, to tie us all off, you know, how are you continuing to follow this path of improving public data access? What's next for you all? So this kind of initiative of getting data out to the people does not have to be public health specific. What's next, at least on my plate, is that I'm working with the Bloomberg City Data Alliance to build this standards of living dashboard. 
There are a set of data-driven cities that want access to more data to make decisions to impact things on the ground in their cities that impact quality of life, the economy, housing, green space, the environment, personal connections, infrastructure. We've seen that data can really help leaders make decisions throughout COVID-19. So now we at GovX are going to continue to get more diverse data sets put them together, analyze them in unique manners, and provide this information to cities along with subject matter expertise to help craft policy changes and help kind of define how do we fix some of these problems that we've been seeing. Not every problem is a health problem, but we can tackle almost all of these problems with data. So we're seeing that there is a lot of data out there that has been underutilized. There are also a lot of data gaps. Aggregating all of this data together in the standards of living dashboard can also really highlight what are some data collection priorities in cities and states and even the country? What don't we know about that we wish we knew about? It's just great to see that this dashboard environment and this public interaction with data and this use of data to make informed policy and and leadership decisions is going to continue after the pandemic is behind us. My fear, though, is that the funding for this kind of effort and the focus on data will start to fade as the pandemic fades. The crux of it comes back on both the public and these dedicated public servants about pushing for better data, about pushing for public data, and pushing for funding so that we can continue to collect, analyze, and distribute the best data that we can. It's the duty of the government to give us this kind of information so that we can better protect ourselves, our families, and our neighbors. Well, Josh, it's been wonderful joining you for this conversation today. I I really appreciate all the hard work that you and the rest of the team have put into not only the CRC itself, but also into these resources that cities can tap to improve their own data governance practices. It's been a real pleasure having you on today. And I want to also thank our listeners. If you'd like to learn more, you can find us at govx.jhu.edu. Thanks for listening.